control yourself. So I need to tell you about my um, latest encounter with your Texan airborne creatures. So there I was, I went back to my little cabin last night and sort of, oh, like this, and stretched up and there was suddenly a loud crack and a thunk and a splintering of broken glass and my mobile phone flew out of my hand across the room and the screen shattered as it hit the wall ten feet away. And I was like, what monstrous creature is this? And it was, of course, the ceiling. <laughs> so... I'm going to be calling my insurance company later and explaining the situation. And they're like, where are you? And I'm like, I'm in Texas. And I'm like, don't, don't worry, we're going to come and get you. We'll send a helicopter. We'll be right there. Anyway, so liberated as I now am from all the perils of modern technology, let's turn to the word of God. Uh, I invite you to turn with me, please, to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to read the first 11 verses. And then we'll pray and hear what the Lord Christ has for us this morning. First Peter, chapter 4. Beginning at verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful God, we thank and praise you once again for this, your word, and for drawing close to us by your word to speak to us. Where your word is heard, your presence is found. And so we pray that you'd animate these words by the same spirit who inspired them and cause us, as we hear them, to be conformed to the likeness of your Son, whose name it is the aim of these words to glorify. Please may he be glorified in our lives all the more as we listen to what he would have us here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A few years ago, in your country, here in the United States, a 16-year-old man, young man, I guess, but a 16-year-old man, got himself high on drugs with a few friends, started drinking, took himself to three times the legal alcohol limit and stole his father's truck. After a series of collisions, four people were left dead and seven injured. 
In the UK, you face serious charges for that kind of thing. You can get 14 years for causing death by dangerous driving. It's no joke, is it? Uh, I don't know what the penalty would be in the US if he was convicted of the charges that he were, were laid before him, but he was never convicted. His lawyer successfully argued that he was a victim. The perpetrator who got himself drunk and got himself high was a victim because, the lawyer argued, he had very wealthy parents who spoiled him and never taught him the meaning of right and wrong so he couldn't help it, so he wasn't responsible. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? And it's an extreme example, but it's an extreme example of an underlying attitude which is increasingly significant today. And it's not something that was found when I was your age, at least not in such toxic concentration. It's a spiritual growing pain that you guys are really going to have to wrestle with. And especially uh, as you head towards college, if that's where you're headed, we're talking about the culture that we're surrounded by. We're surrounded by a culture of victimhood. A culture of victimhood. A victimhood mentality is a mentality that says, I am acted upon by forces outside of me. I'm acted on by forces beyond my control. I'm not an agent, a subject of my actions. I'm an object of other people's actions, and there's nothing I can do. My life's a train wreck, my life's bad, and it's other people's fault. All these terrible circumstances that I find myself in, and there's nothing I can do. I'm a victim. And you will rarely find it so obvious as that 16-year-old young man, but you'll find it all around you. It is very tempting. It's almost seductive to allow ourselves to be sucked in to a victimhood mentality. Let me give you a clue about how you can spot it in yourself. Okay? Here's how you spot whether you are teetering on the brink of, or rather about to jump into, the cesspool of victimhood. It's three little words. Whenever you find yourself saying, it's not fair. Ever said, it's not fair? That's not fair. It's not fair because I'm too tall. It's not fair because I'm too short. It's not fair because I'm too old. It's not fair because I'm too young. It's not fair because my parents had too much money and all they ever do is send me away to summer camp every year and I never get to see them. And it's not fair because my parents don't have much money and I'm poor and I can't do all the things my friends can do. It's not fair because my church is too big and I'm too anonymous. It's not fair because my church is too small and nobody my age comes to my church. It's not fair because I'm homeschooled and I'm stuck at home all day. Or it's not fair because I have to go to school and I have to get up early to get the bus. It's not fair because I live in the city and there's no space. Or it's not fair because I live in the country and there's no people. It's not fair because I've got too many siblings and everyone ignores me. It's not fair because I've got no siblings and I'm like all alone and lonely. It's not fair and the whole of human history has conspired to produce victimised little me. Now, what's the problem with all that? See, the problem with all that is it's true. Obviously, it's true. You're a victim. Everybody's a victim. Here we all are, crushed under the weight of a sinful and fallen world, drowning in the tears of humanity. Like, whoever thought this was a discovery, for goodness sake? See, it's important. Remember I said a couple of, a couple of sessions ago, scratch below the surface and try and see what's going on here. Victimhood is what our culture gives to, the name that our culture gives to the pain of living in a fallen world. Terrible as your sins are, you're not the only sinner. 
you have not only your own sins to contend with, but everybody else's sin. Ever since the sin of Adam, you're surrounded by sinners. There's sin everywhere. Your sin, other people's sin, and so there's pain everywhere, and so there's frustration everywhere, and there's disappointment everywhere, and there's shattered hopes everywhere, and there's shattered cell phones everywhere. And the world is not how it ought to be, and so it's inevitable that you will, at times, feel like a victim. The question is not whether you will feel like a victim. Obviously, you will feel like a victim. The question is whether you will define yourself as a victim. You have two options, okay? And this actually could be the issue that defines the kind of subtext, the cultural subtext that defines your generation. You have two options. You can define yourself as a victim or you can define yourself as a Christian. If you define yourself as a victim, you will, you will, what you say about yourself will all be shaped by the inescapable fact that you are stuck in this situation and you can't do anything about it. You will drift passively through life. You will blame others for your misfortunes and you will never take responsibility for doing anything about it. Passivity, blame, refusal to take responsibility. Those are the signature traits of the victim. Huge temptation. I mentioned universities and colleges. You know, there are universities and colleges in the United States now that have whole departments with over 100 employees and multi-million dollar budgets called things like the Department of Justice, Equity and Diversity, which sounds good, doesn't it? Like, who's, who's against justice? Who's against equity? Well, nobody's against justice and equity, but these departments don't exist to administer biblical justice. These departments exist to line up the excuses for little victimized you to be the catastrophic train wreck of a human being that you're capable of being if you define yourself as a victim because everybody's a victim. How many 18-year-olds do you think rock up at American colleges with all their lives kind of sorted out and straightened out? In none, I tell you. None. No son of Adam, no daughter of Adam is going to get to the age of 18 and have their life in anything... Well, by the grace of God, clinging on to things, yeah? And not as bad as you could be. But you know your heart. Well, here's the problem. No, you don't. You know they're like the tip of the iceberg of the temptations and the sins that you're capable of. You have no idea, no idea how terrible you could become. So you could define yourself as a victim and just blame everybody else. Or you could define yourself as a Christian. You could say, well, yeah, here I am, a child of Adam, but a son of the living God, a daughter of the living God, a brother of Jesus Christ, a sister of Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to let the fact that Adam's sin and my sin and everybody else's sin has messed the world define my identity. That's not going to be my stock excuse for everything that I do wrong. Instead, I'm going to live by faith in Christ. Jesus is going to define my identity. I'm going to take responsibility for my actions. I'm going to fight against sin. I'm going to love God. I'm going to love others. I'm going to seek the lost. I'm going to love the church. I'm going to grow up. I'm going to work hard and laugh and feast and live and suffer and die like Jesus did. You define yourself as a Christian. Those are the options, okay, ladies and gentlemen. You can define yourself as a victim. You can define yourself as a Christian. And I, today I want to tell you, help you to decide which of the two options to pick. And 1 Peter chapter 4 is going to help us. Peter's readers, if you remember the situation they found themselves in, well, these guys had plenty of excuses to define themselves as victims, didn't they? Do you remember what we said about the situation they were in when we thought back in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2? Uh, lonely, isolated communities. You think you live in a small town in the middle of nowhere. Try rural Cappadocia in the first century. Poor. Everybody was poor in the ancient world. Everybody was poor, apart from the emperor, basically. Even the rich people were poor because they lived in homes that had no central heating. 
and no air conditioning. They didn't have cars. Like if, if you knew somebody nowadays who lived in a mud hut with no air conditioning, right, it wouldn't matter that the most rich person in their village, they'd be poor. Right? Everybody was poor in the ancient world in the way that we understand it. Um, the constant threat of persecution, the suspicion with which you are viewed by your culture, and the persecution Peter seems to think is going to get worse. There are good historical and theological reasons for thinking this. And so he says things like chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when, not if, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Guys, you've got to expect this. Okay? Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, verse 13. Or chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Remember the echoes of the stuff we talked about early on. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And everything in you is screaming at you. Yeah, the lion's coming to get me. I have every excuse in the world just to be passive, just to blame the lion and do nothing and to define myself as a victim. And Peter says, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're not a victim. You're a Christian. You're not a victim. You're a Christian. And what he wants to do here in chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, uh, the text proceeds in two stages. Verses 1 to 6 give us motivations. Why it's a bad idea to define yourself as a victim. And verses 7 to 11 give us some positive actions. How to escape this victimhood mentality. Verses 1 to 6, why. Verses 7 to 11, how. So let's look at these two sections one at a time. First, verses 1 to 6, why should you flee this victimhood mentality? Verse 1, let's just have a look at this to begin with. The key instruction found here is to arm yourself with the same attitude that Christ had. And we need to think why this might be so significant. Verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. As a reminder, Christ suffered in the flesh. Christ suffered as a righteous man, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And he did so resolutely. He did so determinedly. He endured hardship. He endured suffering, even though he didn't deserve it. And he did it for the sake of others. And Peter says, you need to, if you want to be a Christian, the, way, the, the central driving focus of your life should be to arm yourself at all times with the same attitude that Christ had. Do the same things as Christ. Have the same attitude as Christ. So, what did Jesus do when he looked ahead and saw outside forces ready to crush him, when he saw the opportunity to define himself as a victim, what did he do when he saw suffering round the corner? He endured it. He faced up to it. You've got all his disciples. Um, he, he says, okay, we've got to go to Jerusalem. He set his face towards Jerusalem, and, and knowing what would happen to him there. And everyone's saying, what are you doing? Crazy. He's talking about going there. And when, he, when Peter finally figures out that he's the Christ, and then he says, well, the Son of Man must suffer and um, be beaten and be killed and on the third day rise, uh, Peter rebukes him. What are you thinking of, Jesus? Why, why would you choose a life like that? An interesting reason, of course, is Jesus didn't do it for his own sake only. There is a sense in which Jesus suffered for his own glory's sake. But... The reason that scripture gives us again and again and again is that the, why did Jesus face up to the hardship and the hostility of the world and take responsibility for the mess around him and try and fix it? It was for the sake of other people. He gave himself for you. Look at some of these other sections in First Peter that we've not looked at. Chapter 2, flick back a page or two to chapter 2, verse 21. And, and notice this, it's, it, you start to see what was going on in Jesus' mind 
when he faced these constant daily choices, these constant hourly choices. What am I going to do? Am I going to be a passive victim of the hatred of the world or am I going to act positively? Why did he do it? Chapter 2, verse 21. For the, to this you have been called because Christ suffered as an example for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Christ suffered for you. Can you see? Jesus is there thinking on the, as he's approaching the cross. Thinking of you anticipating what you need and giving himself for you. Or verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You see what's driving Jesus? It's it's interesting. Why would you fight against sin? Why would you face up to the, the difficulty of living in a world full of Adamic hostility to God. Why would you do that? And we've talked a lot about this already, haven't we? About the fighting against sin and temptation. And so far, we haven't mentioned one thing. Why would you fight against sin? How about not for your sake, but for somebody else? Like, your church needs the most godly version of you you can muster. Your friends need the most godly version of you that the Spirit can create in you. Husbands, your wives... And your children need the most godly husband and the most godly dad you can be. They they will suffer if you cave in, won't they? And they don't realise this. Well, they do now. But you get up in the morning and you've got like just feeling nice for one of those days. I'm not going to be, ah, whatever. I'm just going to feeling terrible. And and all of the passive laziness, grumpiness. And then more of the active anger, frustration, sin start bubbling up. What you're just doing is you're letting your family down. You're crushing your family under the load of the sin that you're not dealing with. And you guys, well, you've got time. You haven't got kids yet. So get yourself, arm yourself with the attitude of Christ. Can you see? Arm yourself. Very interesting metaphor. Arm yourself. Arm yourself. It's a military metaphor. Can you spot that? It's from the... Roman legions, it's where the, uh, the uh, illustration comes from. And again, it's intriguing. You look, do a bit of digging into the ancient cultural world. In the Roman army, all soldiers were responsible for their own weapons. In fact, in, in some eras of Roman history, they all had to buy their own weapons. Like, you didn't have any money, you didn't get a sword. Like, <laughs> oops. Um, modern armies, who looks after your rifle? So there, there's not a kind of polish your boots for you and clean your rifle for you division, is there? Who, who cleans your rifle? Well, you do. If it doesn't fire, it's your fault. Who makes sure your boots fit? You do. Who irons your uniform? You do. Arm yourself with the same attitude. Like, you've got nobody else to blame but yourself. If it goes click instead of bang. Why would you do this? You see, what? this is interesting. Why, why would you have a situation where everybody is responsible for making sure that they themselves, in the first instance, are equipped for the task of living for Christ, equipped for the task of fighting this battle. First and foremost, because it means you can take responsibility for yourself. Secondly, you know that you're then in a position to help other people. Why do you train? I was talking to a guy um, uh, a few days ago, wants, wants to join the military, uh, forget the technical name that he wants to do, but some, some kind of airborne uh, rescue team. So what he's going to do, he's going he's to train and do weights and running and learn how to swim for three miles fully clothed in ice-cold water so that he can save other people's lives. Right. Well, that's what being a Christian is about. Like, stop thinking that, well, I can get by today if I just sort of drift through life. Well, maybe you can just, whether you 
pointless, but what about your friends? What about the person you've not met yet who needs you? What about the person that you need to be in 10 years' time, which you are now training yourself to be? It's no use saying, you know, well, I don't need to go to the gym today because I don't need to rescue anybody today. It's like, too bad. Yet train now because in 10 years' time you'll need it. Arm yourself with the attitude of Christ. And now you get more of these motivations um, which kind of pile up as we wander through. That was the first half of verse 1. How long we got? Don't, don't worry. <laughs> We're not, we'll, we'll speed up. We'll speed up. Okay, so the first motivation. The first motivation comes um, in the second half of verse 1. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of his life, rest of his time in the flesh, no longer for human passions but for the will of God. This highlights the fact that for the first century Christians to whom Peter was writing, and actually for you, you know that your sins in the past have caused you to suffer. Don't you know that? Can you think now for me, please, of something that you've done which was sinful, which made your life miserable? There you are. Didn't take long, did it? Now, you've suffered in the past. Why would you go through that again? And actually, maybe you've, you've suffered also in the sense of fighting against sin in the past, and that's a struggle. And you've, you've kind of got halfway to at least getting this temptation under control. So why would you let it overtake you again? Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Well, it's interesting way of putting it. It's as if he's saying... Um, you ought to have had enough of this if you've seen how painful it is to endure it. Why would you go jumping back in again? Some of you guys live out in the countryside, and I've seen the size of your gardens. Um, you don't really call them gardens, do you? You call them um, ranches, 100 acres or something. We have gardens in England because they're little square things like this. And I don't much like gardening. I, you know, so I mow the lawn, and it takes about 10 minutes with a little mower that's about this wide. And then you pull the weeds out of the flower beds and that kind of thing. But some of you guys, you know, you might spend several Saturdays kind of hacking back the undergrowth and chopping a couple of trees down and mowing the grass. Right. Well, once you've done that, and you've got it under control, and you sit there on the back porch and you think, actually, this looks really nice now. And your mum or your dad says, well done. That's a fantastic job, son. Great stuff. And then you're going to let it just go completely to pot and all the grass get up to chest high again. Why would you do that? You spent three Saturdays, four Saturdays, fighting against the undergrowth. Why would you let it take over? So you spent two or three months fighting against that sin. Why would, you let it take, why would you let it take over again? You got yourself back into the rhythm of praying and reading the Bible, and why would you just give up? The hard thing was getting started. So why stop? Yeah, why give up? You've suffered in the past. So haven't you done with that now? Don't you want to move on and take on the next thing rather than giving up and going backwards? That's the first motivation. Second motivation. This is more potent. Verse 3 You've sinned in the past. So actually, you know, not just how uh, unpleasant it was. Well, not so much unpleasant. So how, how miserable it made you. But how disgusting it is. Verse 3 kind of turns up the heat on forcing these Christians, young Christians, many of them, to look straight in the face at the lives that they used to live and to think, now, do I really want to go back to living like that? Verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. So slightly, it was a, it's a good translation, it's fairly literal. More idiomatically, we might say, you've spent enough time in the past living like that, haven't you? Just think for how you used to live. And some of you, some of you hardly know what these words mean. Never mind being able to imagine what it's like. Um, try to imagine just a little bit, okay? 
living in sensuality, not occasionally dabbling in, but living in, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. You spe- haven't you spent enough time doing that? I, I, I don't want to get lurid in my descriptions of things which you will encounter secondhand uh, soon enough. But let me tell you, when I went to university, um, this is a fairly muted description of the kind of um, lifestyle of the folks around me. And, you know, it's, you, you kind of... You, it's Well, let me be quite frank. It's quite... You have to work very hard not to succumb to the temptations of jumping in with both feet. And, yeah, I'll leave you to imagine as much of that as you want to do. Now, but, but it's not just the experience of that in the past. It's the, the present experience of once you get yourself out of that situation, once you've been on your knees and once the Spirit of God has grabbed a hold of you and planted you back on solid ground verse 4, what does everybody say? With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Again, a good translation, but it's a technical word, isn't it? They heap abuse on you, the New International Version says. They can't can't believe that you wouldn't want to come and join them and swim in the sewers of moral depravity and so they heap abuse on you the whole time. Why are you different? Why are you weird? You Christians. You know why you've got no friends? out there in rural Cappadocia. You know why you've got no friends out there in rural Texas? Because you won't come and live like us. Yeah. And they heap abuse on you. Okay, there's, a, there's a shortcut to lots of friends. Okay, you just go and be with and be like lots of other people. So why are you so weird? Well, let me tell you, in the land of the fools, the wise man is sane. In the land of the sick, the healthy person is weird. That's why... You look and feel it. But you've spent enough time doing that, haven't you? Third motivation. Verses 5 and, well, verse 5 really. God will judge sin, so get out while you can. Continuing the sentence about this, uh, the moral depravity of these rural towns in first century western Turkey. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They will give an account, and so will you, for every word spoken, every thought thought, every deed done. You know, the day of judgment is not a day when God um, decides what he's going to do. He already knows what he's going to do. The day of judgment is a day when God makes public the verdict which he has already passed upon you, righteous in Christ or condemned in Adam, and makes public the grounds for it. The day of judgment is a day of revelation and of exposure and of making public either the sins of which somebody hasn't repented or the sins of which you have, the sins for which Christ died, the sins which God our Father has forgiven. And it is inevitable that we will be in that funny mixture of, not funny, strange mixture of ashamed and yet relieved and joyful on that day. Don't increase the shame. Don't increase the shame now. They will give an account and so will you. Now, what, a, what cause we will have to praise God? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. 
Why do you think worthy is Lamb who was slain is on the lips of those who praise the Lord Jesus Christ in glory in the book of Revelation? Why, why is the weather? The reason is quite simple, because it's, it's his being slain that is the thing that got them there. But having realized that Christ died for your sins, the lo- next logical step is not to pile up more work for him to do. Okay, shall we sin so more? Shall we sin all the more that grace may abound? By no means. By no means. Wouldn't be good for you. Wouldn't be good for anybody. Some motivations to leave that life behind, to take responsibility for who you are, not to blame the world for the temptations, but to take on yourself the responsibility of seeking Christ and fighting against the sin that surrounds you and that indwells you, to drive it out to stamp on Satan's head and to live for Jesus Christ and to live like Jesus Christ. Now, four practical, positive actions. Verses 7 to 11. Prayerfulness, love, hospitality, service. These are four things which, if you do them consistently, if you make active plans to do them insofar as that makes sense, like prayer and hospitality and service, if you put them in the diary, if you make them a part of your life, these will be the kinds of ingredients which mean that even if you were stuck out in the boonies, surrounded by a culture that thought you were weird because you didn't join them in the cesspool of depravity, you would have some chance, by the grace of Christ, of living a life which is like a a light on a hill, shining in the darkness. Four things. uh, Prayerfulness, love, hospitality, service. Verse 7, prayerfulness. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Self-controlled, sober-minded, we've thought about that before, haven't we? But isn't it intriguing here? The reason why you need to be disciplined, mentally disciplined, is for the sake of your prayers. No one ever drifted into godliness. Nobody ever accidentally found themselves praying one morning. Remember the story I told? My, my own chaotic, clinging on by the skin of Christ's teeth, Christian life 20-something years ago in Japan. I was saying to my friend, I wish I were more prayerful. And he said, so when do you pray? I'm like, that's a good question. I don't don't really have a time. And he just looked at me and shook his head and laughed. Nobody sober-minded, clear-headed, so that you can pray for the sake of your prayers. And because of the urgency of the situation, because of the urgency of the situation, Peter, Peter sees something on the horizon, which means that it's very significant now that you should place prayer as an absolute priority. You know how sometimes people think about prayer? Uh, you fit it around other things. So you, like, you, what you do during the day is you go to work, but you pray before work. Yeah? And what you do in the evening is you go to bed, but you pray before you go to bed. And, and what happens when you get busy is everything else stays put and prayer gets squeezed out. So how about flipping it around? So instead of you, um, you pray before you go to work, well, you go to work after you've prayed. Yeah? Instead of, I pray before I go to bed, it's, well, uh, I go to bed after I've prayed. Prayer is the thing that's stuck there. Not going to work and going to bed and eating. It's prayer that's stuck there, and everything else fits around that. I can't remember, was it John Wesley or Martin Luther who said, I've got so much to do today, I need to spend at least three hours in prayer in order to get it all done. Yeah, that's, that's a Christian instinct. Probably both of them, wasn't it? The sort of thing that Luther and Wesley would have said. And this connection between prayer and clear thinking. We all know, we all know, don't we, in our sane moments, that to neglect prayer because you've got something that you need to do is like 
neglecting breathing because you've got something that you need to do, neglecting food because you've got a mountain to climb. Prayer is the fuel by which we are equipped by the grace of God to do everything else. Prayer. Second, love. Verse 8. Above all, mentioned second, but clearly in Peter's mind the most significant aspect of what he wants to say to us. Verse 8, can you see it? Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers over a multitude of sins. Nine fruits of the Spirit. First fruit of the Spirit is love. Greater love hath no man than this, than he lay down his knife for his friends. Two great commandments. Love God. Love your neighbour. What is God? Love. Love is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to love God. Who's got the T-shirt that says, love God, love people? One of the councillors got that T-shirt. Yeah. yeah. Pastor Sexton. Great T-shirt. Love God. I, I got a pair of cufflinks. You know what cufflinks are? Um, well, I bought them. <laughs> they say love God on them. Weird, isn't it? Well, they don't say love God. They say love God. You see what I'm saying? I bought them just like from Marks and Spencer's department store. It's like they, they, what they say on them is I'm a ladies' man. Love God. But I thought, no, if I'm a pastor. If I wear these, it will look like I've got cufflinks that say love God. Love, you know what someone's saying? Yeah. yeah. Why did I tell you that? I don't really wear them now because, anyway, I, my wife didn't really like them. Uh, but, the, well, how do I get out of this? Um, <laughs> the point is, pray, Lord. Um, the point is, love God. A um, couple of distinctive things here, of course. The emphasis on loving one another. Earnestly. Can you see that? Now, what do you mean? What does it say? If, if it says to love one another earnestly, it's not about emotional intensity. Um, it's not the kind of falling in love, can't get to sleep, can't think straight love. There is that kind of love, and that's good in its right place. But to love one another earnestly is to love persistently in spite of the difficulties. And you think about, think about the guys or the girls in your um, uh, group of campers. And guarantee, guarantee, as you think around those people, those young men and women, you think there's one or two folks there and it's no effort to love them. She's my best friend. And she's really lovely, lovely. Uh, he's a great guy, I really get on with him. And there's somebody there who you just don't know very well, or perhaps he's a bit quieter, or you just didn't click kind of uh, socially. You didn't kind of hit it off. Now, only earnest love will allow you to love him. See, loving earnestly is love that will love people that you didn't choose to get put with. You know, families and churches are similar in this respect. You don't choose your siblings, and you don't choose who gets to join your church. Yeah, you're just stuck with them. And that's deliberate. That's deliberate. The point being that God is determined to make you love the unlovable. Because guess what? He wants to make you like Jesus. And Jesus has to put it with loving people like us. About as lovable as those insects that are crawling around outside in the woods. And a particular kind of love, you see. The kind of love that is willing not only to build bridges to people who you wouldn't naturally choose to hang out with. But that covers up strife and covers over offences. There's an allusion here in um, at the end of verse 8. Love covers a multitude of sins. There's an allusion to uh, Proverbs 10 verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife but love covers over offences. What love does is it um, if, if, there's, if there's a reason why you could have an argument, hatred will stir it up. Like you've got a little spark, hatred will 
blow on it until it becomes a flame and a fire and an inferno. But what love will do is get a bucket of cold water and find a way of putting the fire out. Covers over offences. Particular kind of love which is determined to seek out all the people you don't really click with and find a way of extinguishing all the fires of simmering resentment and unpleasantness and just make this a smooth relationship, make this a joyful place, make this a loving community. Love, if you do that, if you give yourself to doing that, you see, you won't, you won't have time to blame the world for your difficulties. You'll be living like Jesus lived and loving like Jesus loved. Prayerfulness, love, third, hospitality. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality without grumbling is... Uh, sorry, hospitality with grumbling is... It's like, if I have all these things but have not love, if I give my body to be burned and have not love then I am nothing. And if you have all this hospitality and you don't love, if you don't refrain from grumbling and complaining about how much you have to give, how much, how much mess you have to clear up when people traipse through your house, hospitality without grumbling. I'll tell you a story about a family at our church. They, uh, one of the elders and his wife have seven kids and uh, every Saturday night, pretty much, they've got two, sometimes three families around. So they've got nine of them, plus they've got... Um, uh, three grandparents and one of uh, Steve's sister who has Down syndrome who lives in a house nearby. So they're all around there, plus like 10 or 12 other people. And um, uh, what happens, you know, everyone goes out to play in the garden afterwards. And when you go out to play in the garden, with the best will in the world, even if you're really careful cleaning the mud off your shoes when you come back in, there's always this gunk sort of traipsed through the house. But every time you arrive at their house, what happens, it's always beautifully clean and nice. And you're like, I, I scratched my head one day and I was thinking, um, I wonder how it gets clean and I asked, I'd asked Steve one day, this is like eight years ago, when we were, um, you know, not long after Emmanuel had started, and I started noting, noticing this pattern of their hospitality. I said, how, how do you do it? And he says, well, you know, when everybody's gone, we just all, you know, spend 45 minutes clearing up the mess every Saturday night, beginning about 11 p.m. Clearing up everybody else's mess, hospitality without grumbling. Yeah? From those to whom much has been given, lovely house, much is required. So, prayerfulness, love, hospitality, and finally, service. All these things overlap slightly, don't they? But you can start to see the different angles that they're giving you on the Christ-like way that we are called to live. Verse 10 and 11, look with me. As one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You see it? Use it to serve. Whatever the gift is. And here, I think what happens is Peter is being deliberately as broad as he can possibly be. He's not getting specific. And when you, when you have biblical texts that do this, that talk in general terms about service and love, rather than specific things like gossiping and lies, when you have general encouragements, general instructions, the task for you is just to pause for 10 seconds, 15 seconds, and think, okay, let me at least identify one example of how I could do this, one specific way in which I could embody this. So I'm going to read it again. You tell me, tell yourself in your mind, how could you do this? As one has received a gift, what gift is it? What is it that you've got that 2,000 years ago nobody dreamed about and that not all your friends have now? What, have you, what has God given you? As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. What that means is you're stewards of the things that God has graciously given you. God has given you whatever it is that he's given you his varied grace. You're a steward of it. You can't keep it. You can't keep your heart beating. 
You know, that's a gift of God. Everything that you are, everything you have is a gift of God, and he's just given it you to look after. Now, hold it with these open hands and to share it and give it and enjoy sharing all that God has made you and all that God has given you. Because in the end, it's God who's the source of life. Whoever serves, verse 11, halfway through that verse, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. After all, what do you have that you didn't receive? Pride in human beings is the most hilarious misplaced thing, as though we can generate anything ourselves to be proud of. I once, um, can I get confession time, and then we'll finish. I was, um, my first post as a pastor, I was, wasn't really a pastor, it was more like a uh, galley slave, really. Um, we were called apprentices, and it was a real privileged position because we, we got to do a little bit of everything and just kind of test out this vocation, whether it was a wise thing for us to proceed with. It was nearly 20 years ago. And I got to preach like three or four times in the first year. And what happened was that you discover that people are really appreciative. You know, people, um, especially when you're young and you know, you're muddling through these sermons and they're a bit of a mess and they go on too long and they get rambly towards the end. <laughs> Have you noticed? Anyway, and uh, where was I? But what happens is, and, and people used to say, you know, be really, really appreciative. I got more emails saying thank you for your sermon in that first sort of six months of being a no good, useless preacher than I've ever had since. Um, anyway, so... Um, and what happened? And I was thinking, oh, yeah, I'm quite good at this, aren't I? And, and, and I had sort of six months in or a year in, I had this, um, uh, uh, I guess, pastoral checkup you know, with um, Andrew, the guy who was he's probably 10 years older than me, and he was uh, one of the staff members who had been much more experienced than me. He was tasked to kind of help me through some of the practicalities of ministry. And, I, and he said, so any, any challenges, any unexpected challenges? And I, I guess I, I hadn't thought of it up to that point, but I did say, yeah, I think probably there's a temptation to be proud, isn't there, as a, as a minister? Because you're doing something which people really appreciate and they thank you for. In an evangelical church, at least, they're really grateful for Bible teaching. And so there's a temptation to puff yourself up. And I guess I sometimes feel tempted to be proud. And he looked me in the eye and said, what have you got to be proud of? There ended the conversation. He's right. What have you got to be proud of? What have you got that you made? What have you... What have you got that you owe to yourself? Nothing at all. Every single thing that we have spoken about in these five sessions, when I have been calling upon you to pull yourself together, to seek the Lord, you will, if you're wise, you will spend the next 10, 20, 50, 60 years, however long God gives you, striving for him and seeking him. And when you get there, on Resurrection Day, you'll discover he was dragging you along the whole way. That old kind of footprints poem thing. It's hackneyed and it's true carrying you every step of the way. So strive for him. Prayerfulness, love, hospitality, service. Let's pray. Merciful God and Father, we thank you for what you've given us. Teach us that gratitude that overflows in generosity and overflows with a cheerful and full-hearted commitment to live for Christ and to live like Christ for the sake of ourselves and more importantly for the sake of those around us. Teachers, we pray never to regard ourselves as victims, but as Christians, those bought by Christ and possessed by him. And may we do good for others and bring honour to Jesus in the way that we live. Please pour out your spirit upon us afresh to this end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.